0: Good morning. Normally I hear Nick's voice from this side. It threw me off because I knew I was you, but you're over there this morning. Good to be able to worship God this morning together. And thanks for the communion and the welcome and all the singing. And as Chris mentioned, this afternoon there will be a baptism. Fahrain, um, is she here yet? Where is she? Do you mind standing up really quick just so we can acknowledge you? There you go. That's going to be awesome. She'll be baptized at hern Bay on, on Hearn Beach Road. And during the announcement, some people come up and share. And then at 1 o'clock, we'll all head over for that baptism because we live near water. So really cool to get baptized in the water instead of a pool, you know. But that'll be good. And last week, if you were with us, the, the beginning of our church service could perhaps have been a bit chaotic and for people that were tuning in on Facebook there was comments like what is going on and and of course it it achieved the purpose it was designed for because even Chris McDonald who works with the kids ministry heard the chaos and and he came in and said what is going on so that that is not normal what happens here if you were here last week it was just an illustration to show what church at Corinth would have looked like so today is going to be normal. It's going to be ordered. It's going to be peaceful. And John, was getting ready. He, he must feel a revelation coming on. And uh, Carlos, you remember Carlos was preaching and Raymond was saying, my sermon is more important than yours. And, um, and, and I don't remember what Nick was saying, but he was saying something as well. But anyway, praise God we have order in in the Bible and in Christ. And so today we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, turn over there. Let's pray. This, this is a good chunk of scripture. So it's helpful to read a healthy dose on your own or in public. That, that's, a, that's a practice of the early church. They would read scripture publicly. And so that's what we'll do today. We'll read the entire chapter, which is quite a bit. And it's helpful just to kind of digest it. Things things may strike you that aren't really said in the sermon, but certain phrases words, concepts, and ideas seem to pop more when you read things publicly, so that's what we'll do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but let's pray together, and then we'll read this passage. Father, we're grateful for the resurrection, which really roots... Our entire faith system and we're grateful for the spirit that came and dwells inside of us and opens our minds and hearts and help us to really um, understand this passage help us to really understand its core truth and and use me despite my flaws and help help the the scriptures to come to life for all of us so that we can follow it and follow your son more closely for all this in Christ's name. Amen starting in verse one of first Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the whole chapter together. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. When you hallucinate, you don't do it in large groups. That's kind of the counter to people say that, When Jesus appeared, it was a hallucination, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, meaning the apostles. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to, of all people, be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ... The first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Cool verse there, hey. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Sometimes when you're speaking, you have to qualify because they would have tried to twist and distort his words. So he clarifies what he means by that. And then in verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, there's no resurrection. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And with these two verses, you find countless alternatives and explanations. In fact, according to the research that I did, there are 40 different potential solutions to these two verses. So normally when you read stuff and and you come across stuff, you can boil it down to like a good solid three or maybe five. But this one has 40 different possibilities. So when you when you when you arrive at something like that, you can conclude we have no idea what's going on. (laughs) <laughs> when there's 40 different options, it's really hard to say. Now, there, it's unlikely that people were being baptized for people that had died in hopes they would save them. Paul would not approve of that. I mean, that's, that's contrary to the gospel, right? One of the most likely explanations, if you're curious, is that it, it could be among the 40, the one that seemed pretty plausible to me was if I'm dying and I say to a family member, I... And they're not a Christian. And I'm a Christian. And I say, please listen and embrace and understand the gospel. And they get the gospel. And they get baptized as a result of my dying plea to eventually see me in heaven. Baptized for the dead. That's one possible alternative of what this means. I'm dying. I pass away. I say, please, bro. Please, sis. Please, family member. Listen to the gospel. Embrace. Accept the gospel. And they do. Then they're perhaps getting baptized for the dead as I pass away. All right? So that, that's probably one of the strongest explanations I heard. But please, go and research the other 39 in your own spare time. And verse 30. And as for us... Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character." bad company, the word in Greek company could be translated a couple ways one of it can be company, like the company you keep, another can be conversation so it could apply to both, I mean that's obviously true he's quoting from a pagan, the meander, and there is truth to that, everybody says don't hang around bad people, they'll corrupt you and influence you and, and certainly that could have been the case with people coming to the church in Corinth denying the resurrection but it could also be bad conversation corrupts good character they're saying there is no resurrection it's not happening it's not happening he's saying that's going to corrupt you both are possible in any case verse 34 come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God I say this to your shame and then we continue verse 35 but someone will ask okay if there is a resurrection how are the dead raised with what kind of body will they come how foolish what you sow does not come to life until it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. I love his explanation is you can kind of hear him thinking aloud out loud. Perhaps perhaps wheat or something else. Verse 36, but God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives his own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. Fish, another. There are also heavenly bodies and they are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon, another. The stars, another. And stars differ from star and splendor. So, will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable, it will pass away. It is raised imperishable. It will last forever. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's way cool stuff. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that is spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And we're going to talk about what all this means, okay? So in verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The most concise commentary I've seen on that verse is posted outside of a nursery of children. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) That's a good one, eh? In verse 52, "...in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where O oh, death is your victory, where O oh, death is your sting. You can fill the mounting crescendo with this as he's, as he's trying to help them understand the intense power of the resurrection. In verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And to some degree, you could just kind of go home. There's a lot in that passage. The whole issue, though, if we were to break it down, is they're denying the the entire church, or there's groups of people in the church saying there is no resurrection. So essentially, their theology is bad. And when you have bad theology, that equals bad behavior. (laughs) When when we thought the earth was flat, it promoted fear because if you go too far, you'll fall off the earth. <laughs> wrong information leads to wrong behavior. So they think there's no resurrection. We have arrived. It's another way of saying this. We have arrived spiritually. There's no need for a future resurrection. Look at our spirituality, look at our gifts, look at our wisdom. There's no we have arrived. We are angelic almost. There is no resurrection. And Paul, through this book, is saying, look, your theology is so bad, it's no wonder your behavior is all over the map. And you can look through the book of Corinth to see that their behavior is all over the map. And so he's correcting that and saying, well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the resurrection. And that's why we get chapter 15. And from this, we're going to look at three points. The resurrection brings certainty. The resurrection brings power. And the resurrection brings Hope Amen. brings all three of those certainty. The resurrection does bring certainty, and he's establishing this in the first few verses of chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 is essentially that. And he says, This for in verse 3 what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures; that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, what's cool about this is this this is not really this is not Paul's original thought. This is highly likely something he's quoting from a Christian creed. So Paul writes this letter at about fifty A.D., but somebody passed this information to him, and he's passing it on to the church in Corinth. And, and he's saying stuff like, according to the scripture, this, that's not a phrase Paul uses. When he cites scripture, he says, it is written. So what, what's likely is he, he's, he's been given this Christian creed that as soon as Jesus died, was buried and resurrected. Early on in the church, this was kind of their motto. This is what they passed on. Very important that you understand. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. There's scriptures that say that was going to happen. That he was buried. And he was raised again, according to the scriptures. This was kind of codified in in early church history. And they would have passed that on with certainty. So by the time Paul comes on the scene, he's not making this up. This is not original. He's saying, look, this is Christian teaching. There's a certainty to this. According to the scriptures, this has happened. And it's rooted deep inside the scriptures. You can scour the Bible for... Predictions about the resurrection. They're in there. Jesus himself in John 2. He says something. Tear this temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. They're all upset. Because they say. Oh this has taken 46 years to build. And in John chapter 2 verse 21. The temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture. And the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says. I will die And I'll be resurrected. It all clicks for them. There's a certainty to this. It's not fictional. Jesus predicted that. The only being to predict his death and his resurrection and fulfill that. By the way, Psalm 16, New Testament authors quote this. As a reference to the resurrection, it's David, and he's saying, My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And that's used in the sermon in Acts chapter 2 when Peter says, Look, this scripture is about Jesus. There's a certainty to, to this, okay? The resurrection happened. It was talked about. David, King David, wrote this psalm during his lifetime, which was roughly a thousand to nine hundred BC, nine hundred years before Jesus even comes on the scene. There's a certainty to this. Okay, when Paul said, "What I received, I pass this on to you according to the Scriptures." This there's no other there's no other religious text that makes a prophecy nine hundred years in advance and it comes true. There's a certainty to this. And, and, there, and it's really cool when you start to dig into all of this. If there's, a, there's a, an archaeological find, this is a stone, just looks like a rock, but there's Aramaic or Hebrew inscribed in there. You can see one kind of stand out, eh? And kind of toward the bottom. So the, 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 it, it's basically a king from the ancient Near East, and he's, he's kind of flexing his muscles saying, I conquered these kingdoms and, and, and the kingdom that David led. Jerusalem and Judah. And it, and it references Israel and King David. This is like legitimate, certain stuff. All right? So, man, the, 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 Paul, when Paul's passing this on, he's saying, hey, this was talked about in scriptures 900 years ago. And guess what? There's archaeological evidence to refer to this king who wrote this psalm referring to Jesus. I, and I received it and I pass this on to you. This, this is certain stuff. Plus, he goes on to say in verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, he made appearances to people. I mean, he, he, he turned up to Peter, then to the 12, and then more than 500 at one time, most who are still alive. You guys don't think there's a resurrection? There's people that saw it, still living. Go talk to them. I mean, that's, that's, that's not circumstantial evidence. That's like you don't think it happened go find these people. There's more than 500 of them some still living Then he appeared to James then to me look i'm giving you something with a high degree of certainty Plus as he kind of rounds it out That's what you first believed (laughs) When I came and I preached I I I talked about the resurrection I talked about all this and you said I believe it and you based your entire faith on it Like all of these things, he's saying, look, and now you're saying there's no resurrection? What in the world is going on? There's so much certainty to this. And then he goes on because they say, well, okay, well, he's thinking out loud. Well, if I say there is a resurrection, they're going to say, okay, yeah, well, how's it going to work, Paul? How's it going to be resurrected? So he answers those questions in verse thirty-five. You know, he gives some reasonableness. There, there is concepts existing today. When you plant a seed, it dies, and then it comes out something different, right? So it's reasonable that you could be a natural person, die, and be raised spiritual person, right? And so, it, it, look, but this, 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 and and then to even finalize his argument, he's saying, well, if there's no resurrection, consider this. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. What I'm saying is useless. Your faith is useless. We're lying about God. We're still in our sins. And everybody who's dead, there's no hope for them. Is that really the theology you want to base your life on? There's a high degree of certainty in the end. Man, this is an argument saying, look, the resurrection is certain. It happened. And there's... There needs to be uh, a security when we understand that Jesus raised from the dead. It's not like a fictional movie. This stuff really happened. And Paul's helping them understand that. Some people say, because, you know, if you talk to people, they say, well, I I don't believe in the Bible or God or this stuff because I, I really haven't heard a good explanation for it. Uh, Maybe you've encountered that. Some people will say that. I I don't really hear a good explanation. Well, here's a counter to people who use that as an argument to not follow what God says. So stick with this just for a minute. All right. How many of you heard of this guy? Yeah, I figured Duncan would. (laughs) Um, So this guy, really smart guy. Hey, I mean pretty, pretty smart guy. He got the Nobel Prize along with others in 1965. And all this is stuff I've researched. It's not like I really am aware of this guy. So, all right, but here's, here's what this guy did. He worked in quantum electrodynamics, which I don't even know what that is. (laughs) While alive, he was considered one of the best known scientists in the world. He assisted in developing the atomic bomb in World War II. He pioneered quantum computing and nanotechnology. I mean, all that's just like really brainy, super nerdy stuff, right? And so he's, he's kind of an authority. And when quoted in a book, they asked him to explain energy. And he said, no one knows what energy is. We can describe it using some natural law, but no one can actually explain energy but yet everybody believes in it even though we can't thoroughly explain it and so when people say because I've heard people respond to me and say well I, 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 can't, I, I can't really believe I've never really heard a thorough explanation of how the Trinity works yeah. I've never heard, heard a thorough explanation of how Jesus can be God and human at the same time so I just can't believe it well explain energy to me well but you believe in that Explain consciousness to me. But you believe in that. Right? And so and so people always have this argument, but but that, that doesn't work. Right? The, the, no, nobody can explain all this kind of stuff. But but Paul's countering saying, but but there is a certainty to the resurrection. And, and even if you can't explain it to the, the best of your ability, people still believe in stuff. They don't really understand. So why are they critiquing us for believing in something that has a high degree of certainty? Backwards, right? Backwards. And so we got to understand, even smart people say, hey, look, we can't explain this stuff, but we believe in it. Man, I, I can't explain how Jesus was raised from the dead, but I flat out believe in it. Yeah. Right? The resurrection is certain. It gives me security. It should give us security that this is true. It was prophesied about. You read the Book of Mormon. There's a lot of prophecies that never came true. And they just kind of sidestep them and say, Oh, well, let's, let's just ignore those. But th- that's not the Word of God. The Word of God prophesied Jesus would resurrect from the dead and it flat out came true. Quran, same thing. Prophecies, vague prophecies never came true. Bible. Prophecies that came true. Jesus resurrected from the dead. We we don't have to be intimidated by an atheistic society that says, tell me why you believe in God. Tell me all the answers. Say, hey, I'm certain it happened. If you could explain to me energy, I'll explain to you the Bible. (laughs) Don't be intimidated by... Those are normally excuses and smoke screens for the lack of desire to actually change their life. There's certainty to the resurrection, and we need to stand secure on that. Amen? The resurrection brings certainty. It also brings power. And praise God for that. As mentioned in the welcome, right? Acts chapter 4. The apostles were doing something, proclaiming with great power about what? The resurrection. I mean, they're fired up about it. This is 50 days after Jesus has been resurrected in Acts chapter 4, roughly around there. And, And it gave them great power to testify about Jesus. And so, in this passage, we find that there's a close connection with the Jesus dying for sins and being raised again. That's verse 3. Died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's a connection there. So, it would have been one thing if he would just die for our sins. That, that's helpful, but it's not as helpful as if he raises from the dead and defeats every power and dominion and every authority. So now we're free. Now we actually have power to follow suit because of the resurrection. And so throughout this, you'll get a contrast in verse 2. This word occurs at least four times throughout this passage. Verse 2 says, well, if it's not true, you have believed in what? Vain. If what I preached isn't true, you believed in vain. Verse 10 the same word is used, but it's camouflaged because it's translated in the NIV. So I'll read it to you. But the grace of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not vain. The NIV will translate it without effect. God's grace wasn't vain. It had power. And I worked harder, but it wasn't me, it was the grace inside of me. Verse 14, it appears again. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Useless, our preaching is vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, we're vain when we preach. Verse 58, he concludes it. So this is the last time it appears, this idea of being vain. So he begins and ends. It kind of ties it together. Let nothing move you, anyone. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. So if, if what if it's it's not if it's not vain, it gives us power. But if if all this isn't true, then we're just living vain, empty lives. It's a word kinos in the Greek, which which translates to vain in the English, means you're empty-handed. There's nothing to get, There's nothing to show for it. And it also means one who boasts. I'm a Christian, but has no fruit of their life. It's just a vain claim. And so he's saying, look, the gospel has so much power, it wasn't vain in my life, it produced something. It produced something tangible, it produced something visible. And look at your life, Corinth, and if you remember, man, it's a mess. Chapter 3, division. Chapter 4, more division. Chapter 5, immorality. Chapter 6, lawsuits. Chapter 7, chaos in the marriage. Chapter 12, who knows what's going on. Chapter 12 or 14, chaotic church structures. But that's all a result of their vanity saying, we're Christian, but there's no real visible, tangible evidence. And Paul said, that's not right. It, it, the, the resurrection shouldn't be vain. It should have some power. Because this is true. And this is certain. And if it wasn't, verse 30-32, through 32, what in the world am I doing fighting hard for you guys? Fighting wild beasts? That may be literal or metaphorical, but whatever, it's crazy. And Paul says, look, why, why would we be doing what we're doing if there was no power in the resurrection? There's a power to this. And when you believe, and when you you study the Bible and it becomes clear and the light bulb goes off, you say, man, Jesus resurrected and it becomes real, it, it catapults you into a genuine Christian life. You don't have to fake it or manufacture it. It's, I believe this, and there's a power available that's tangible. And we see this in Luke 7. This is the sinful woman who comes to Jesus in Luke 7. What I find fascinating about this story is what does Jesus say to her as she goes? Your what has saved you? Your faith. Now, if you read that passage, she doesn't say one word in the entire passage. But Jesus says, your faith has saved you. He visibly saw her faith because of her actions. She didn't come to the party and say, I'm a Christian. Let me show you I'm a Christian. She just came and showed her faith by her action. I find that a bit convicting because our our religious cultural, I'm a Christian, I blah 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 blah. Is it vain? Is your Christianity vain or is there a power behind it? Are you just saying words? Or is there visible, tangible? evidence of your being changed by the resurrection, where you don't have to say a word, people just say, man, it's clear, there's no doubt, that person's life is changed. That's inspiring, but it's also convicting. It means if if you believe in the resurrection, there's a power available for you and me and us to change. You think, how am I going to pull my family back together? It's falling apart, the resurrection has power to bring it back together. How am I going to bring my marriage back together? The resurrection has power to bring it back together. How am I going to reconnect to my kids? The resurrection. There's power to reconnect to your kids. How am I going to change the parts of me that I don't like or that I can't change? The resurrection. There's power in the resurrection. How am I going to overcome these long-term, entrenched habits in my character? The resurrection. There's power in the resurrection that's the encouraging bit of it. But it's also a strong challenge to those of us who say, man, I'm, I'm really living this out, but there's not squat action involved. Yeah. That's vain. And Paul said, look, the, the resurrection brings power. It shouldn't be vain. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. How's your Bible study going? Oh, I haven't been reading my Bible. I believe, I believe faith comes from hearing. I believe I should confess my sins. When's the last time you confessed? No idea. Vanity. I believe in making disciples. When's the last time you connected to someone, built a friendship with someone, poured your life out to someone to try to help them understand the gospel? Uh, been a long time. No power. Vain. I believe in discipling. I believe people need to help me. When's the last time you got input? Uh, haven't done it in a while. When's the last time you served the poor? When's the last, You know, but, but there should be some visible action. Not just statements of Vanity. If we really understood the death, burial, and resurrection, it wouldn't make us passive. It would make us active. And the power would be transparent, as is in the case of the woman in Luke 7. Let's close out with the resurrection brings hope. Resurrection brings hope, and I hope it brings you hope. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Verse 42 through 44 is the same idea. We'll be resurrected. where Our bodies are weak and decaying, and we're sown like that, but we'll be raised, and we'll never decay. Verse 42 through 44. Verse 50, if we're only natural bodies, we can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Corinth was so caught up, we've arrived, we're spiritual, and Paul says, yeah, well if if that's all you got, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. Because that type of body won't transition over. Verse 50, you you must have the imperishable to enter the kingdom of heaven. And And I think this brings a lot of hope. Because if if you think about it, if all we have in this world is all it is, then Paul's right. Just, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's no real purpose. If that's, if that's all there is to this life. And so because of that, a lot of, a lot of criticisms and critiques have been made of Christianity. They say Christians can't deal with reality in the real world, so they concoct this elaborate plan of an afterlife, which helps them embrace Reality, and if that's true, then it's sad. And, and in other words, ah, uh, life is so tough. I need something to hang on to. There's got to be an afterlife. Now I can move forward. That's kind of the critique, especially from atheists. And and you know what? For their argument, that all works well if God doesn't exist. But if we turn it around and say, okay, well, for the sake of argument, because. Because Pe- people often you, I've heard people say that to me Oh I think it's an opium of the soul It's a crutch and et, cetera, and et cetera. Okay, well if that's your argument Let's turn it around And use it in the same way with you If God really does exist Then perhaps At the end of the day You're really looking To not be held accountable And that's why you live your life The way you do You don't want anyone to call you out Call you to account because if God, if God really exists, that's what's going to happen. Maybe your version, maybe your belief system is an opiate. Maybe your belief system is a crutch. Because you just don't really want to be held accountable. We've got to look at both sides of the coin. But in this, in this passage, and all throughout the Bible, there's an extreme hope. A certain hope. This is rooted in Scripture. It gives power. And it gives us hope that there is something more. Praise God for that. Amen. Praise God. God for that. And, and think about, you know, study literature in college and, and all of these different themes. So I, I like themes. And Lalise and was watching Harry Potter recently, and I've never seen it. Still haven't seen it all the way through. I know. Sorry, I fell asleep. Sorry. I tried. I tried hard. But I was like, so I woke up and kept waking up. It's like halfway through it, it kind of in and out, and I, I got it. Okay, he's chosen. I kind of got that bit. But he doesn't really know it. Alright, so okay. And then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, Neo from the Matrix. And by the way, Neo, if you reverse the words, it's one, you know. But so he's the chosen one. He doesn't know it. And he's trying to get people, people are trying to, you're the one, Neo. And, and what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to bring peace to the Matrix. Right? What's Harry, Spot, Harry Spotter. what's Harry Potter supposed to do? I don't know what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to kill Voldemort, kill Voldemort and... The dark, evil forces, right? So that's, that's Harry Potter. Neo comes in. He's the chosen one to bring peace to the Matrix. And then you got Luke. You know, and what's it well, Luke Skywalker, what's he supposed to do? This Jedi prophecy, he's the one supposed to balance out the force, and he's the chosen one, and blah blah blah. And then you got Lord of the Rings, Frodo, well he's chosen one, he's supposed to take the ring to Mount Doom or something like that. You know, but but and that that's just a few examples. But what you get from this is that humanity wants a chosen one to rescue them. It's, it comes out through the literature. It comes out through the media. We desperately hope someone will rescue us. We desperately hope someone can overthrow the dark forces of evil. And we're waiting and hoping for the chosen one. Praise God our story isn't fictional. It's not a character about somebody with a Z on his forehead or whatever. It's about a human being that lived, died, and it's verifiable, it's accurate, it's certain. And that gives us hope. Because the chosen one lived, died, and resurrected for you, for me, and the church. There's more to this life. The hope of the resurrection gives us courage to face fears, to be radical, to eliminate anxieties and stresses. It gives us hope. Because of the chosen one. Jesus. To conclude, I pray we become a community who believes in the power of the resurrection. There's an extreme certainty to this. Be secure in what you believe. It's sound. It's solid. And it provides power. And it provides hope so that we can go to the next life. Inherit the imperishable. And then, the statement will be true for us. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.